Hey internet peeps, welcome to Screen Mavericks, where we take an in-depth dive into some of your favorite movies and TV shows, new and old. I'm Meg, I'm here with the loud, the proud, Miss Jennifer Midge. Let's dive on in. of our Home Alone series, and today we're going to get lost in New York. I'm pretty excited about it. Jin, do you want to get us started? Of course. So this Home Alone took a huge step up from the first one, where we were just kind of in his house in this town. We are now in one of the most populated cities in in United States, one of the most iconic Christmas cities, in my opinion in the United States. But before we even get there, we have to figure out how we got there <laughs> or how per se, how Kevin got there. As yeah. we previously discussed, the alarm does not go off again for the parents because he had unplugged it to plug in his, either his razor or his camcorder battery. So again, 15 people don't get up before eight o'clock. It's crazy to me because, yeah, I mean, we mentioned this in the last episode, but it opens very similar to the last. With the chaos. To the last movie. Yeah. With the chaos, with the same issue with the, you know, alarm clocks and even just the chaos at the airport. Except this time Kevin's there with them at the airport. <laughs> well, uh, but before we even get to the airport, one of the interesting things I, I, I noticed about this too is when we, we talk about the first movie, when Kevin spills, causes the incident where Buzz is pretending to puke up the cheese pizza mm-hmm. and he ends up spilling like soda and milk all over the place. Mm-hmm. And then they do this scene where they pan the entire family and they're all glaring at Kevin. Mm-hmm. In this movie, we open after the chaos to them all preparing to go to a Christmas choir concert that both Kevin and Buzz are in. And some of the other cousins might be in it too. I it was unclear of where they live, <laughs> um, because you know Uncle Frank there's and a, yeah, there's a few Aunt, that Aunt Leslie there. were there. Yeah. Um, but it you know it's you know everybody's preparing and we have this chaos and we have one of the most iconic scenes, I think, in the second movie. There's many, but Kevin has the first time we see him, he has it in his hand. Which would become the most popular, one of the most popular Christmas presents, the Talk Boy. Which Meg and I, you and I, were the right age. We remember the Talk Boy voice recorder that Kevin is playing with. It was then for sale. Everybody had to have one. They even came out with a pink version, if you remember, the called the Girl. Talk Girl. Yep, yeah, the Talk Girl. I remember wanting one so bad, and it was such genius marketing because they released it literally when they released the movie, which was right around Christmas. Like I, right, it was already out. It was already out. And then it was like, oh my gosh. I was like, that is just too much. Also, way too much advertising. But, you know, that talk boy becomes kind of important for Kevin in his adventure because there's several things in the beginning of the movie that he records that come up later. So when we first see him, he's in his parents' room. He's sitting on the bed and they're watching an old TV show, a uh, game show that I think in the movie in there was called Ding Dang Dong. <laughs> and <laughs> there, there was an in in-show commercial for the Plaza Hotel that had the phone number in it and Kevin records it. And then in the next scene, his dad tells him, Kevin, go put your, you got to put your tie on. And he's like, well, my tie's in the bathroom. 
And Uncle Frank's in the bathroom taking a shower, and he told me if I ever walked in on him, I would never grow up feeling like a real man. I feel like I don't have a long time to unpack that. But, <laughs> you know, Kevin, you know, his dad tells him, go in, close your eyes, just get your tie and get out of there. Except that's not what Kevin does. He does start to do that. If you remember, he walks, he kind of goes in the bathroom, his eyes are closed, and he's feeling around the door. But Uncle Frank is singing in the shower. So what does Kevin do? He pulls out his talk boy and records his uncle singing in the shower. It's really not as bad as it seems because it's not a camcorder, but yeah, he's just recording the audio. He's just recording the audio and uncle Frank, you know, catches him and calls him a pervert Mm -hmm. and tells him he's going to slap him silly. You know, these recordings come up later. So there's, you know, kind of super important to the storyline, especially with this talk boy. And then, when we, you know, traveled to this choir concert as everybody's watching and Kevin has a solo. I don't know if it's actually Macaulay Coffin singing and Buzz is in the row behind him. And of course does what, you know, Buzz and siblings would do though. If I, this was my kid, I don't know which one I'd be pissed at more. And while Kevin's singing, Buzz is like taking the candles and playing drums on his head and the audience is laughing at Kevin and it's super humiliating. And of course, Kevin does the thing that Kevin does and knocks Buzz over, which I don't know if this would work that way, but he knocks over the entire choir and the the tree falls down and hits the piano player. I could see kids going down like dominoes. I mean, I remember being in choir and like those risers are not like they're sturdy. But like if you go falling, people around you are also going to go falling, especially if you fall forward, which they did. Oh, yeah. And they take out the piano teacher who goes head over. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because it was funny. The poor piano teacher. <laughs> she goes head over heels over. And the next scene we see is Buzz and the whole family is sitting there and they're at home. And Buzz is giving what the audience clearly knows is a fake apology. And then it's Kevin's turn to apologize. And the whole family is doing this pan again. Like from the Mm -hmm. first movie where they pan the entire family and everyone is glaring at Kevin. And I just want to point out both times, like this scene kind of really made me angry because I was like, not again. Like both times, Buzz is the instigator here. 100% Buzz is the instigator. Oh, yeah. That whole thing at the choir would not have happened if Buzz had just stood there. Yep. I was like, your brother's got a solo. Don't be a jerk. Like, you know. Yeah. And yet... And, you know, it's kind of funny because Kevin makes the argument when he gets to the argument with his mother again, he makes the argument that he's always the one getting crapped on. And I kind of don't feel I feel for him because that's kind of how it seems. I'm not saying that Kevin's a perfect kid, but you have your entire family glaring at you for something that you didn't instigate, Mm -hmm. especially because you have, you know, like with the first movie and the second movie, you have people like Uncle Frank who call you a pervert and say, look what you did, you little jerk. That's also another quote that, that has never died. That scene surprised me too, because I was like, I don't ever remember my aunts or uncles ever referring to any of us as a jerk. Like that just, I find it hard to believe that, like that an adult would call a child a jerk. I just, mm. Or a pervert. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that Uncle Frank. <laughs> like that, I don't even. That's true. That's true. That's a good point. That's why I was like, he's clearly he's, I mean, he was the, especially too, if you look at the choir scene, he's asleep. Yeah. He only woke up. And then he was the one laughing the hardest 
mm-hmm. when Buzz was doing the drums. Yeah, very mature that Uncle Frank. Oh my God, he's a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> he's a jerk. <laughs> and I think what's interesting about this one is Kevin and his mom have that conversation again. Yep. Where she's trying to ground him, and he's like, "I wish my family would go away." And she says, "Well, you got your wish last year. Maybe you'll get your wish this year." Mm-hmm. You know, um, and it doesn't quite happen that way, but uh, I mean, it it happens though. It's right. funny because, like, I just his family's going to Garbage, Florida. Which, sorry for anybody from Florida. I just call it garbage Florida. But anyways, it, it is the time that they're there. It's just raining. It's awful. It's not fun. Um, yeah. And he gets to head to New York, which, like we said, is like a really fun place to be for Christmas. You know, there's it is. snow, there's hustle and bustle. Like, you know, there's it one It is part... if you don't work in New York City. Oh, yeah. No, you want to be there for vacation. You want to be working there. But, right. you know, it's just funny because you see them all miserable and it cuts to Kevin being in the plaza, like on the bed, just being like, you know, this is the life. Like, this is the best vacation. And it's like in that moment. Hell, yeah, it is. <laughs> you know what I thought was really interesting is that both movies, when they originally get to Paris and when they originally get to Florida, they're they're miserable both times, not just because Kevin is missing, but because their location and their trips kind of not working out. There's scenes in both movies where the family is watching TV. And in the first movie, it's all in French. And in the second movie, it's all in Spanish. Yeah. um, And actually, I think in the second one, they're actually watching It's a Wonderful Life or Miracle on 34th Street in Spanish. It's a wonderful life. It's a a wonderful life in Spanish. So, which I think, and everybody just looks miserable. And they're all in their Hawaiian shirts. And they're just like, what are we doing inside here? What are we even doing? Yeah, but the whole scene where Kevin gets lost in the airport, like that, I felt was really realistic. You know, like it he's was. following a guy that looks like his dad. They're wearing the same coat and everything, and he gets on the plane and he's like, "Yeah, there's my dad." And it's just it goes into that whole thing again. Like, did they not have assigned seats? But it's all errors that technically I feel like back in the day before there was that intense security, like could have easily been made. Well, there was multiples. So when they're when they're first at gate uh, curb check in at the airport. And Kevin is doing something that I have seen plenty of kids do because they're super impatient. Yeah. And going for the batteries. Mm -hmm. Right. And the batteries die in his talk boy. So he's immediately like, dad, I need batteries. But like Kevin's not assessing the rush that is happening because, you know, they're getting to the plane. He's only concerned that his talk boy is dead. And so Kevin takes his dad's bag and that's when, you know, Peter's like, okay, Kevin, are you going to carry my bag? Um, and they're running through the airport and he did something that I've seen tons of kids do. They just stop. Yep. Kids can disappear like out of nowhere so quickly. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And all it took was for him to stop to put the batteries in. And you see the other gentleman wearing a very similar scarf and jacket to his dad. They were very close together, but it was just that eye line of sight where Kevin follows the wrong person. And, I love how they've, they they so brilliantly cover up all these questions that you would have. It's like, well, wouldn't they have looked at his ticket and known that he wasn't supposed to be going to New York? And he but has all no. the tickets out of he, that, yeah. yeah, he ran into the flight attendant that was collecting the tickets. And the tickets went everywhere. And then he yep. was just like, oh, my ticket's somewhere in here. You know, and then the one guy was like, okay, board him, but make sure he locates his family. And he still mistakes the other guy for his dad. Yep. Um, which uh, the only other thing I thought was weird about the scene is that he locates his dad 
But then when he goes into coach, he doesn't see any of his siblings. Well, and you see him kind of do a little shrug and he's like, mm, oh, well. And, and then yeah. I love that he talks to the guy next to him and is like, have you ever been to Florida? And the guy responds in French, which is like a nice little nod to the first movie. you know? Right. And he's France. still talking when he puts his headphones on. Uh-huh. And, and had the guy, you know, either not been talking to him or was speaking in a language that Kevin understood, maybe he wouldn't have put his headphones on. But the whole reason that he doesn't realize he's going to New York is because he has his headphones on. So he doesn't hear that announcement. So yeah, they put in all these little things that kind of answer your questions as to like, how did nobody realize until he was literally in New York city. And then we have a, you know, Chris, the song that, that we seems like Kevin is listening to is a Christmas song. Um, I believe the title's Oh Baby, It's Christmas. And it's kind of funny because a lot of my favorite Christmas songs came from these movies. When I was watching the second movie, it's interesting because the score to the second film, to me, is more memorable than the score to the first film. I still recognize both. But when the second one came on, I was like, oh, I know this. Like, I know that I know this. And if you played this, I'd be like, that's Home Alone. Whereas well, usually the first Home Alone score, which is, it's it's similar. It's woven it's, in. Yeah, it's yeah. woven into the second one. But the first Home Alone score, I don't know that I would, like, I'd be like, I know this. It's in something. I don't know that I would pin it to Home Alone. It's actually interesting. So both the themes from both the movies are very similar to each other. But it's way more pronounced in the second movie, the way it opens. And the funny thing is, is that the theme to Home Alone, the classic theme to Home Alone, is considered a Christmas song now. I mean, I agree with that. Right. And it's a traditional Christmas song. It's something that I have on my my Christmas playlist. And, you know, and but obviously they had a lot of other, you know, like when he's on the plane and you hear, oh, baby, it's Christmas, you know, kick in. And the stewardess is making her announcement Mm -hmm. that he's going to New York. And then you see this shot of the radar where the two planes are going in opposite directions. Yeah. Um. You know, one to Miami, the other one to to New York is is kind of great. And there there's two scenes that happen simultaneously again because we have Kevin who's on his way to New York and doesn't know yet. Kevin doesn't know until he gets off the plane that he's made a mistake. And you have his entire family now in Miami who still hasn't realized he's missing. And these two kind of moments and scenes are kind of playing back and forth with each other. And Kevin lands in the on the plane he gets off the plane and he turns around if you remember and he looks and he notices there's nobody else like everybody's gotten off the plane but his family's not there and he's you know kind of looking around confused and he goes up to there's a fun fact coming up too he goes up to the girl working at the desk who fun fact is ali sheedy and he says excuse me come on ali sheedy john hughes can't go without one of those I mean, the only other person you could have had in there that would be more recognizable from a John Hughes film would be Molly Ringwald. Yeah. (laughs) And he says, excuse me, what city is that over there? And she says, it's New York, sir. And he has a shocked look on his face. But I feel like she should have done more if there was a kid randomly by herself that seemed shocked he was in a different city. Right? Yeah, there are definitely moments in this film and in the first film, too, where I'm just like, the adults here are kind of useless. Like, "Mm -hmm." And so then... He has that moment where he goes and he sits down and he's he's going. And it's kind of like in the first movie when he was like, I made my family disappear. He's sitting there going, my family's in Florida and I'm in New York. My family's in Florida and I'm in New York. And he just has this like excitement, like a kid at a candy store. Yeah. And I believe that actually cuts to 
a scene of him in the cab going over one of the bridges into Manhattan. Yep. But again, as we mentioned in our earlier episode, this all would not happen today because, again, if you had a cell phone, you could easily just text your parents and be like, hey, I'm in New York. Surprise. Like, come find me. But they spend days trying to locate their son, which as a parent, like I'm not a parent yet, but I can't imagine what that what that would feel like not knowing where in the world your child is. Absolutely. And. You know, in reverse, while Kevin's going through this epiphany, we have his parents, well, his entire family, who've just arrived in Miami, and they're a baggage claim, and they're handing out everybody's baggage, and the last, uh, you know, Kevin's dad picks up Kevin's bag and goes, this is Kevin, gives this to Kevin, and it goes down the line where they're all passing down, going, give this, and they're like in age order, and they're going, give this to Kevin, give this to Kevin. And the last one you hit is um, Macaulay Culkin's actual brother, who plays Fuller. And he looks and he goes, here you go, Kevin. And there's just two old people standing there. And then he goes back with, Kevin's not here. And they go up the whole line going, Kevin's not here. Until, and even his mom, Kate, goes, Kevin's not here because she's clearly still in a rush. Mm -hmm. And that's when his dad, Peter, goes, what? And she just looks at him, laughs, says, Kevin, and passes out. Which I think is the far superior one. But it gets me every time. I laugh so hard in that moment. Yeah. Well, and I I do want to point out something I didn't mention in the first film. So the mom, obviously, is always the one that goes after Kevin. And in the first film, she spent days traveling to get back to her son. And the family barges in like 10 minutes after her. And if I were her in that first film, I would have been so livid that i know it bothers me too because that's when he says we took the morning flight the one you didn't want to wait for yeah like way to rub salt in the wound (laughs) i was like you could have just taken this flight and not done all the shit you did and still gotten here at the exact same time yeah yeah but in this one we see her you know in the hotel room with the family for a good majority of it because Again, they have no idea where Kevin is, which was surprising to me because Kevin uses the credit card pretty early on, which I'm sure we're going to go through that whole scene. But, you know, he there's ways to track where your credit card's being used. And like, clearly they reported it missing and stolen. So, like, how did nobody like nobody knew where he was, you know, two days before that? There was a delay. So credit cards 30 years ago weren't processed the way they are today. All right. That's fair. yeah. The credit card had not been reported stolen when Kevin checked in with it mm-hmm. because they didn't know where he was yet. They didn't even know he'd been using the credit card. So the first oh, that's true. The dad right. didn't realize his wallet was gone. Right. So, and he doesn't even realize it till they're talking to the police officer and the police officer, which this guy was at least a little bit more helpful. And he oh, was yeah. like, if you have a wallet and there's credit cards in there, we can track him when, and if he uses it, and that immediately when he says that, it cuts back to Kevin using the credit card. Yeah. And he goes, oh, my God, it worked when he's checking in. Yes. So <laughs> it hadn't yet been reported stolen and that it wouldn't have been reported stolen unless they re-ran the credit card, which does happen later when Tim Curry's character does that. So it's not quite the way it would work today where there's this hardcore digital paper trail. It, it just was slower. You know what I mean? Because they that's use a good that thing to point out. Yeah, because I d- and it's hard sometimes when you're watching these films. Like I do have to take a second sometimes be like, well, why wouldn't they just do this? And it's like, well, that was 30 years ago. That didn't exist or like that wasn't as prevalent or, you know, so it's 
it's always funny because I find myself thinking that when I'm watching some films and being like, well, yeah, they can't just look it up. There's no internet or there's no easy right. access to internet. Right, exactly. Exactly. It's kind of crazy how that I almost, and yet, and yet we were alive when this movie came out. So it's, you know what I mean? But we didn't yeah. have credit cards, hopefully. But, you know, that's just kind of one of these crazy things. And I feel a little bit more realism with the first one than I do the second one, but. Yeah, because, okay, so he he's out in New York. He goes to the Plaza Hotel. We know that he learned from the commercial. And mm-hmm. he it's brilliant what he does. He calls to make a reservation, and he uses his talk boy to make him sound older. But I just call bullshit because there's no way in hell you'd be able to get a suite at the plaza on Christmas Eve or Christmas week. You know, like those are for sure booked up. Absolutely. And I was, you know, it's kind of crazy when she's like, and the things that he's requesting, he's like, it needs one of those little refrigerators that you have to open with the key, which is just so specific. And I feel like the first part of this movie is just a, a commercial for the talk boy. You know, when he's like slowing down the voice, like, look at these features. And when he goes to sign in, he's like, his lie is, I got to say, though, the lie is actually a little bit convincing. When he was like, well, my dad's at a conference and he gave me his credit card so I could check in. We already know the reservation exists. His name's on the, like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah, it no, all, he's super clever. Right. It all does fit. And, you know, if you remember, so it's kind of funny because there's three employees at the hotel that we see several times. The um first one is played by Tim Curry. The other one is played by Dana Ivey. And the third is played by Rob Schneider. All are who are hilarious in their own right. And it's funny because actually on IMDb, they're all listed not by their names. It's just like concierge, bellman, desk clerk. <laughs> like, But if you do look on their name tags, they do have names. Like we do know that Rob Schneider's character's name is Cedric. But they, you know, these are the three people that are kind of, we see are are very suspicious of Kevin, probably Cedric the least, but to you know, um the concierge played by Tim Curry is, is suspicious from the beginning of Kevin's I just story. wanna point out, and this is just a little tidbit that I noticed because of the industry that I'm in. Uh so I work in travel and tourism and the keys that Tim Curry is wearing on his outfit indicate that he is part of Le Clay d'Or, which is a very highly well-respected, established group of concierge. And you have to go through intensive training in order to receive those keys. Like they're, it's, it's a very high honor. And the way that he is acting, there's no way he'd be in Le Clay d'Or because he is so suspicious and goes against like every rule of a concierge in this movie. And again, I know it's for movie purposes, but just watching that and like having the knowledge in the background on that, I was like, mm, this wouldn't fly. Wow. That was, wow. <laughs> that was a great tidbit. There is something that I would never have ever figured out. <laughs> well, and that's, it's one of those things like you don't know unless you're in it or around it. Um, but yeah, I just, I thought it was a funny little aspect where it's like, mm, yeah, no, Tim Curry. No. <laughs> well, it's actually kind of funny because Tim Curry's suspicion and Kevin knows he's suspicious. He's picked up yeah. on it, leads him to snoop around the suite, kind of looking for anything that might be off and out of the ordinary. And Kevin hears him coming and jumps he seems like he's already prepared for this to happen. And yeah. he has his giant inflatable clown in the shower with like kind of like puppet strings. And he's playing back the recording that he made of Uncle Frank in the shower. 
And when Tim Curry comes in, it's right at the part where he goes, get out of here, you nosy little pervert. I'm going to slap you, silly. And we see the concierge go running out of the room, right into the table, which for some reason I feel every time he does that. <laughs> when he trips over the table. Yeah, yeah when he trips that. over the table. And he puts it, you know, back and he is so apologetic to Kevin the next day about walking in on his father who he still hasn't yeah. seen. But it doesn't make his character any less suspicious. If anything, it makes him more suspicious. It doesn't, it doesn't. It does hold him at bay for a little bit. Right. But then, yeah, he he then becomes suspicious again. I think because he only sees Kevin. Right. And so one of the you know interesting things, too, is that while Kevin is also in New York, his parents are in Miami. Two other people arrive in New York City in a fish truck. Our friendly neighborhood thieves, Harry and Marv. This time known as the Sticky Bandits. The Sticky Bandits, which leads to, I think, a lot of hilarious moments. They've escaped from prison and they make their way to New York. Now, at this moment in time, they have no idea that Kevin's in New York. They were there trying to make a score by robbing a large toy store that kind of reminds me of being near the after... Um, F.A.O. Schwartz. Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. But it's called Duncan's Choi- Toy Chest. And they decide that they're going to rob that because they take a lot of money for charity and they wouldn't have made a deposit on Christmas Eve because Christmas Day is a holiday. Sidebar, have you ever been to F.A.O. Schwartz? Before it closed? Yes. No, it's back open. I specifically Googled it. It is in Rockefeller Center. I, Meg, I know it's in my building. <laughs> like, I, I know they reopened it, but it doesn't look anything like what it oh, used to. Oh, no. Yeah, it's not like the original. It's not even anywhere near the size of what it used no. to be. No. I remember going as a kid, and I, it's huge. It was multiple stories. And the one thing that I truly, truly remember going there was like just walking in to the like Barbie section. And there were these huge columns with water and just like barbie shoes floating in it and i thought it was the coolest thing ever well that's how fa fao shorts back in the day was meant to be like a kid's paradise oh it was supposed to be it was (laughs) supposed to be awe-inspiring like the coolest thing you've ever seen in your life yeah um and you know that's kind of how duncan's toy chest was even when kevin goes there for the first time and that's the kind of thing that brings these characters back together is after the incident in the bathroom, the hotel got Kevin a limo. <laughs> they got an eight-year-old or a ten-year-old a limo with a cheese pizza just for him to drive around New York Which, City for the day. Hell yes! If you show yeah. up with a New York cheese pizza and a limo, I'm down. I'm game. Good to know what I'll do for your next birthday. I will show up at your apartment with a limo and a cheese pizza and be like, "Get in." Okay, specifically a cheese pizza from New York or New Jersey. Well, it's not going to be from New York because it's going to because you live too far away. But I'm just saying, like, it'll be from a place that makes New York style. Does that count? Uh, mm, <laughs> you, hear, you, you know what? <laughs> You're just going to have to come back and we'll just do this in New York. There we go. Yeah. When we can actually yeah. go to New York. Safely. I, you know, Texas has some amazing food, but pizza's I not it. You, pizza's yeah, pizza's not it here. You, you're going to go north for that. <laughs> um, but when, you know. He's in the limo. He asks the uh, limo driver, do you know any good toy stores? And that's when the limo driver brings him to Duncan's toy chest. And it's this paradise style toy store that is immaculately decorated for Christmas. And at the same time, we have 
it, they don't see each other yet, but at the same time, you have Marv and Harry staking out the toy store, which in a hilarious moment, you have them in the doll, not the doll houses, the like playhouses. Yeah, the little Christmas houses. The little, <laughs> they're sticking their heads out the playhouse. And Marv makes his joke about how there's no bathroom in his house, which is, it's, you know, it's really funny because that's kind of what's bringing us together. But that's also where Kevin meets Mr. Duncan, the owner of the toy store, who's played by the wonderful Eddie Bracken, who was in so many amazing roles in his career. And that was kind of where Kevin gets his first lesson, I would say, in the movie. Um, because he donates $100 to the children's hospital after hearing that that's what Mr. Duncan collects it for. Also, Kevin doesn't realize he's talking to Mr. Duncan. And he tells Kevin, you can pick up two ornaments off the you could no he could pick off an ornament off this christmas tree and mr duncan says why don't i make a suggestion and gives him the two turtle doves and he's like i can have two he goes well two turtle doves he goes you keep one and you give one to a very special friend which of course then leads to another part of the movie you know everything in this movie is leading somewhere yeah that's pretty impressive that like kevin being 10 years old is that kind of self-aware to be like you know what i'm gonna donate this twenty dollars because i'm just gonna spend it on something that'll rot my teeth or my mind you know and i thought that that was like a really sweet just like moment of him being like you know let me give to somebody else it was that was you kind of especially in this one with with different scenes that you have you see that kevin is very caring you know what i mean Oh, yeah. I mean, that whole scene with the pigeon lady, which we'll get to. But yeah, that yeah. he is a very caring person. Absolutely. Absolutely. Despite constantly wishing his family away. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And I think it's kind of funny that the Marvin Harry obviously don't know that as Kevin is there, but they pass him on the street. Mm -hmm. And at first, Harry thinks he's seeing something. And there's also in these scenes where he's walking with him on the street, you have Marv who has tape all over his hands and keeps getting it stuck to people. Like he just goes by and sticks his hand in the, the uh, Salvation Army bucket. And he's yeah, hence the sticky bandits. Covered full of, you know, change. And then the scene where he gets stuck on that lady's purse. Mm -hmm. that The lady that comes up multiple times somehow in yep. New York City. I don't punches know. Punches him later on. Yeah. Yeah, punches him later on. But, you know, there's multiple times that he sees Kevin where they kind of have these quick, you know, little interactions when they're standing there and the lady's in front of them. And Kevin is the one that pulls on the back of her skirt yeah. and she turns around and punches them both in the face because Kevin goes, he did it. No, it was him. And he takes off running and does what I think is brilliant, buys all those cheap pearl necklaces and then breaks them all on the street so that they fall kind of like the cars in the first movie. And then he runs into the, the hotel. What's interesting is that that scene is also where um, the concierge confronts him about the stolen credit card. Yeah. Which I, I wish it had just had some context because he didn't steal the credit card. It was his dad's. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's kind of what propels a lot of this movie is like we're missing context. We're constantly missing context. Not we are, but the characters are missing context. Because it would have been a totally different outcome if the hotel knew that that kid was lost in New York City. <laughs> and, you know, the parents give the hotel a whole lot of crap when they show up and they're like, how could you let my child out of your sight? You know? Right. 
But at the same time, Kevin doesn't tell them anything. He doesn't say like, and that's part of a lot of these films are, it goes back to Kevin not saying anything. He almost always just tries to solve the problem himself instead of being like, hey, my parents got on a different flight and I'm here alone in the city. Like he never says those words ever, which would stop the movie from happening. So I understand why he doesn't, but. Right. And it's kind of funny because when they accuse him, he runs up to his room and, you know, they're kind of going after him and he goes up to his room to pack his bag real quick. And as he sees all, you have the concierge, you have the bellman, you have the desk clerk and you have security with them as they run upstairs and they first, they enter the first room of the suite. And that's when Kevin plays back angels with even filthier souls, which is also, you know, you have a call to the first movie when he did it to Marvin Harry. Mm-hmm. And it first starts with hold it right there. And so <laughs> the employees all stop. I love that scene. This, this scene in this movie is one of my all time favorites when he keeps hitting pause. And he's like, you're here last night too. Wasn't you? And you, yes, sir. I was. And it's just kind of, I think, hilarious how... Well, and then it's like, you've been smooching with everyone, even Cliff, and everybody... The security guard's name is Cliff, yeah. And he's like, no? (laughs) I swear, it wasn't me, swear to God. You know, but then, of course, he fakes a shooting, which, as we know nowadays, would be way worse. Way worse than it was, you know, kind of back then. Um, Yeah. Yeah. but that's when they're all crawling through the hallway and then he leaves out the stairs and he thinks he's made a clean getaway only to run into Marvin Harry. Yeah. I do like the scene where he goes with the pigeon lady. I don't know if she has a name. I just keep calling her the pigeon lady. She actually um, doesn't. On you know, IMDb, she is listed as pigeon lady. Great. Well, then I don't feel so bad. Um, but I do like that whole scenario, which, you know, he gets away from Marvin Harry and that's who he ends up with and he's hanging out with her and he like again he goes into that whole child innocence of looking at a problem and being like well you need to open your heart up to love you know and just making things sound so simple it's really interesting with her because she takes on the same role that old man murphy sorry old man marley does in the first movie um where kevin was originally afraid of her because she was covered in pigeons and pigeon poop Mm mm-hmm and he was terrified of her. And they play the same similar kind of negative-ish music when he encounters her the first few times. And that's when after he's he's running and he was like, I was afraid of you, but when I look at you, I'm, I, it's not so bad. And the, you know, the scene you're talk, referring to is when they go back to, and they're sitting in the ceiling of where the orchestra is playing. Yeah in the concert hall and they're talking about life and she's giving Kevin some life advice and he gives it right back to her in the most innocent way possible. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's a really nice, just like human connection moment before we get into the chaos of him setting his trap at his parents or at his uh, uncle's empty renovated house. Right. And I think it's interesting that both two with him, old man, Marley and her they both have a problem that is a very adult problem to have. Yes. Um, and they explain it on a lower level, but you know, Kevin's giving them back feedback. That's just, you know, where she was like, she's afraid to love again after her first, you know, love fell out of love with her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she, she doesn't have any friends and she kind of pushes everyone away. 
And Kevin's just like, open your heart. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, oh, it's so good. <laughs> Such a good message. It is a good message. Um, in both directions. Yeah. But the thing that I'm, so the part that gets me a little annoyed with this film, though, is like, he knows their plan, right? So he overheard Marvin Harry say what they're going to do, that they're going to rob the Toy Story. And instead of going to the cops, he decides to take it upon himself to, like, solve the problem. He being Kevin. you know, and said earlier, yeah. Yeah, it's just like, you know their plan, just go to the cops and tell them. Yeah. Although, I'd like to think that this one is more fun. (laughs) It is. It is. And again, we do have that kind of setup where, like... Tim Curry caught him using the credit card and he says like I've committed credit card fraud so again maybe in his mind he's afraid to go to the cops because he thinks that they'll think that he committed a crime again yeah he tell he calls himself a criminal more than once in that movie yeah and to 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 go back to this he knows what they're gonna do so he sets up all of his traps obviously Kevin doesn't have a house but he did overhear his or he did look up in his dad's address book that his aunt and uncle have a place in New York City. Now, in comparison, it's the same aunt and uncle they stayed with in Paris. Yes. And they're still in Paris, yep. which is why the house was empty and under renovations. And when Kevin decides what he's going to do in his plan, the first step is he has to ruin the bad guy's plan. And Marv and Harry hide in those little houses until everybody goes and they start to loot the cash registers and the money that's supposed to go to the children's hospital. And Kevin calls himself a criminal again when he's standing outside with the rock. And what I think is funny, too, is the first thing he does is he knocks on the window and takes a picture of them. Yeah. Just like just to taunt them that little bit. And of course, Marv smiles. (laughs) And they see him and you you hear that no you know what i mean from from yeah, Harry, Harry knows he, he's going to throw it he breaks the window, the window. which yeah. kevin had put a note on the 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 stone which comes up later apologizing in the movie apologizing but... for breaking the window yeah yeah and it was so sweet but i also love that he had also planned by just bringing a board and a bucket with him cuz apparently he just knew that the bad guys were kind of come out of the broken window and that one was going to land on one side and that Marv was dumb enough to jump on the other side. But again, that scene, again, skeptical. Because uh, Harry jumps out, and he's standing on the one side. And there is more than enough time for him to just step off the board. Just step off the board. But instead, he waits for Marv to jump out and propel him up into the sky. Like He even yells his name. Yeah. And I was like, like just step it off. If you have enough time to yell at him, just step off the board, man. <laughs> But then we wouldn't get, you know, the hilarity that ensues. So, um, Which funny is because so then they chase him all the way back to his uncle's house. And they're just enough behind him that Kevin, he doesn't run up the stairs. He runs up that pipe that's on the outside that he climbs mm. all the way up three stories somehow. And Kevin's waiting for them on the roof. And that is the first of when all of his traps begin. But all of his traps in this movie are like every single trap. I'm like, well, that should have killed you. Like, <laughs> like 100% in- Marv should have been dead within the he, first, like. So he gets three bricks to the, the face. Attack. Yeah. From so three stories, four. four from three stories up. Yeah. He would have been dead. He would have 100% been dead. And, oh, and he didn't even have any cuts. All he had was little tiny imprints on his face from the bricks. 
So I, I like so all right, in the first movie, I'm like, okay, they're like the paint cans, this and this and this. That could have killed them. For the most part, I think most of that stuff could have been survivable, not without scars for years to come or infection. But this one, I was I made a list of every injury that they both got and yeah, newsflash, Marv got more than Harry, which isn't surprising, but there was several a sequence of several things that happened because right after the bricks to the face, they do the same thing they did in the first movie where one goes around the back, the other one goes around the front. And that's when you have Marv with the staple gun who gets it in the butt and then gets it in the balls and then gets it on his nose so perfectly somehow that it doesn't break the skin. And then you have Harry in the back who thinks, I don't know. So this always bugs me. I don't know why instead of going, trying to go through the front door, I guess maybe because he assumed it was rigged. He sees the the ladder from the fire escape in the window and thinks that he can just swing over there like he's yes. some athlete. <laughs> and of course there's slime on it and he falls which isn't so bad like the, it doesn't st- other than the bricks it starts off pretty mild and in kevin's defense when mar first walks through there's not really a trap other than the fact that there's no floor which again marv never looks ahead of him ever ever, ever. ever. he never looks down he just steps and then face you would have broke your face if you face planted the way that Marv face plants in that scene. Meanwhile, you've got Harry in the back who finally kicks open the door and then a bag full of heavy tools falls on his head. We would have been dead or at least brain damaged at right? that point. And you then have Marv, who, you know, you have, and it goes back and forth. You've got Marv in the basement who slides on the slime into all the paint cans, which mm-hmm. could be survivable before Harry's upstairs. And you can clearly tell he's been through this before. Because every time he pulls on one of the lights, he assume, he backs up like something's going to happen. And it was just Kevin luring him into a false sense of security. Because when he pulls the fourth one, when he walks into the bathroom, there's the blowtorch again. He gets him twice. That's so mean. Yep. He gets him twice. Well, and then he dunks his head in the toilet. <laughs> okay, can we just talk about this scene? So, he it, it's the same scene from the first one with the blowtorch, but just with the one step further where there's no water because the faucet doesn't work, but he sees water in the toilet, so he does a handstand somehow to get his head into the toilet, but the toilet is filled with kerosene, right? Yeah, it's filled with, like, gasoline or something. And oh, I guess it is kerosene because he also dips the rope in the it. The rope in it, right. So it's full of kerosene. You see an explosion happen on the entire first floor from outside, yet when we see Harry's character come up from there the only thing that's really happened other than the burn on his head is that his face and teeth are black he has no other injury which again i call from an explosion (laughs) with your face and gas i'm just saying he should have had way more burns on his body Mm -hmm. um but i think uh if you're gonna go right after that you've got marv in the basement getting electrocuted and they did that you know funny scene where you see a skeleton they turned him into a skeleton again both of these men would have been dead at this point. Oh, yeah. They shouldn't have survived. Because right after the electrocution, the next person again to get injured is Marv. And it's when a 90-pound bag of cement falls like four stories onto his face. <laughs> that would have broken his neck. Like, he should have been dead at that point. Like, it, this this entire list. And then, of course, when they go back to do the paint cans again, like which was a callback to the first movie. Mm-hmm. And they... They know the paint cans are coming 
And then Kevin throws the biggest pipe I've ever seen <laughs> over the edge of the stairs and it hits yeah. them both square square in the mouth. To which they then fall a story and then the pipe he cuts the pipe and it lands on them. Again, dead. These men would have been dead. But what I think is funny is it hits them square in the mouth and they all still have their teeth. Well, yeah, but in the first one, he loses his tooth from a paint can, so. No, he loses his tooth when he falls on the cars. On the what? On the, the cars. The Right before the uh... paint can scene with the cars, and that was when Marv goes, ooh, you're missing some teeth. I thought it was the paint can. I guess not. You're right. It is before the. It is before the. Regardless, yeah, they yeah. wouldn't have walked away with lovely smiles after that. The scene that comes after that is the tool, st- the tool chest coming down the stairs, mm-hmm. where they both hear something clearly going, and their idea is to put my ear right, closer. Like you to know it. what's up. You know what Kevin's doing. Why are you gonna stand at the door and put your ear to it? Move away. Move away. But of course, that's what makes the movie so funny, especially because it pushes them <laughs> pushes them into the wall, and then the mm-hmm. next scene you see both of their noses are flattened to the side, and mm-hmm. in unison they both take their nose and go <laughs> to put it back into place, and you have that great line from Marv that goes, "That was the sound of a tool chest coming down the stairs." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so good. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Other than that, you know, they have their final. Uh, fall after that from the roof where they're climbing down the rope that's soaked in kerosene and they fall three actually four stories to the ground which i want to know how much money kevin's aunt and uncle have that they have a four-story house in new york city and also a house in paris like Mm. this family is people making bank Yeah. yeah and uh they fall they get covered in stain i think was the second one it was like all sticky yeah. Varnish and stain. It was paint stain. Yeah. Um, and they chase they chase Kevin into the park again. Which I just have to say there's a, a couple there's another night scene. I can't remember if it's the same one where Kevin's walking through the park and it's terrifying at night. Actually, it's right before I think he meets the pigeon lady the first time. And there's like all he makes it seem like New York at night is completely terrifying. Uh, New York at night is completely terrifying in some this, this locations. Is this is true. Um, and he's walking through and there's like, you know, the the scary cab driver and the hookers, which I didn't know until I was older that they were hookers <laughs> on the street. Um, but they, you know, at the end, they chase him to the park again and they probably wouldn't have caught him except Kevin slips on some ice and knocks out. Yeah. And they pick him up and they carry him in the park with the intent, same as the first movie, to kill him again. Which, again, this is a movie for kids. This is a family movie and they're talking about killing a kid. Yeah, and this and this one was like even scarier because uh, Harry pulls the gun out of his pocket. Mm-hmm. Which he can't, and he can't fire it. He tries to fire it at the pigeon, the pigeon lady, right? Yeah, but they're covered in like the stain and he can't. It's too slippery, it. yeah. Luckily, because then she covers them in seeds and all the birds come. Yeah. And it's like and watching the birds. Yep. And Kevin saves them and Marv lets too much go. He's like, oh, we just escaped from prison. Yeah, You know? Yeah. And he just keeps going off. He's like, shut up, Marv. And he goes, oh, and we're the sticky bandits now. That's S-T-I. Which again, like, I just, Kev- why didn't Kevin stick around? Why wasn't Kevin like, hey, cops. 
I don't know where my family is. I know. He was like, I've been lost in New York for a few days. Can you please help me? And by then, his mother had been, like, the whole family had been in New York. Yeah. They were at the Plaza Hotel. They had already yelled at the staff for losing their child. (laughs) Right. And she'd smacked the concierge across the face twice, right? Maybe. I think she smacked him twice. And she was really angry at him. And then he had a quivering lip after the first time. But, you know, she's out there in New York City trying to find him. And, you know, I, I... as cheesy as this is, after the incident with the cops, Kevin goes to one of the most iconic Christmas spots in New York City to essentially he's praying to the, the tree. I don't know. He, it, they don't make it specific, but he's asking to to see his family again and he's asking to see his mother one more time. And he is standing in front of the Christmas tree in Rockefeller Center. Um. I don't want to get into why this scene is completely inaccurate in at least in 2020. It would, well, I will say 2019. Um, and that is because no matter what time it is, there's always people around that tree. <laughs> and when Kevin is there, there is not a single person in Rockefeller Center. Yeah. It's a Hollywood, you know, well, trope. of course <laughs> you need it, you know, for the, the effect. And, yeah. uh, you know, Kevin's mom realizes that he has a thing about Christmas trees and she knows where the biggest one is around. And lo and behold, she shows up and I love when she shows up and he's like, wow, that was fast. Yeah. (laughs) To his wish. It's just such a, like, there's these little nuances that remind you that he is a kid, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. At the the end of the day, like it, it seemed kind of like in the first movie, it seemed like it was all fun and games at first. Until he really got scared and mm-hmm. he constantly and multiple times you hear him and also you hear it in uh, in voiceover where he's like, Mom, where are you? Yeah. But you're right. New York City can be a very intimidating, very scary place, even as an adult. So I can't imagine what it would be like for an eight year old or sorry, a 10 year old who'd lost his family. Yeah. But the nice thing is, you know, he finds his mom. And then I must say. The hotel room that they put them in is gorgeous. It has two levels to it. Yeah, and somehow all the kids were in one room. Yeah, that part I didn't understand, but whatever, (laughs) it's fine. And also, Fuller's the only one in the bed. (laughs) (laughs) Surrounded by, well, this always bugged me too, he's surrounded by like seven cans of Coca-Cola. For me, it's not even about whether he'd wet the bed, but no kid should have that amount of sugar. Oh, God, no. Mm Mm-mm. That's that was probably like 300 400 grams of sugar right there. <laughs> <laughs> but then they wake up to a living room full of presents and in that moment Buzz actually has a redeeming quality where he That's you know, probably his most redeeming moment out of both movies. Yeah, where he actually acknowledges his brother and is like, "Hey, if Kevin hadn't messed up, we wouldn't be enjoying this awesome Christmas." So, and he wishes him a, a merry Christmas. That scene gets yeah. me every time. And, of course, you still have Uncle Frank being Uncle Frank in the background. And he's like, don't you take any of my presents. God, he's the worst. <laughs> Look, you got poor Aunt <laughs> Leslie. I'm like, how are you married to this man? Seriously, though. How? Yeah, I don't know but, how. But then we see Kevin leave, and it's really sweet because he goes and he meets Pigeon Lady. And he's like, I'm not going to forget you. And he gives her one of the turtle doves. And, that again, I teared up. Couldn't help it. It happened. Yep. And that's also the time where you get 
the iconic line like you do in the first movie where you see Kevin doing something, but you hear in the background in the, in the first one, you hear Buzz scream, Kevin, what did you do to my room after he knocked all the shelves down and let the tarantula out? Whereas in this one, Buzz comes to the hotel room door and gets Kevin's bill for room service. And you hear his father scream all the way from the <laughs> hotel. Yeah. Kevin, you spent $987 on room service? Which, yeah. I mean, I don't oh, even know. Oh, my parents how... would kill me if I spent yeah. that much money. Didn't matter if I had been missing for three days. <laughs> I, I just want to point out that I think, in general, that my mom would have found me before then. Yeah. yeah. To, in today's day and age, you know immediately whether or not your card is declined. Again, well, and like we've been saying, it, this movie couldn't happen in this era it just couldn't the the way that it happens it couldn't happen in this era i'm not a big fan of reboots but i'd be really interested to see if someone tried it, but if they reboot it it would have to be adjusted because like we said it just would be problematic for them to use the same storyline because there just is such simple ways of resolving so many of right you wouldn't be able happen. to explain like the 90s let you explain away a lot of things yeah yeah. Based on lack of technology or just kind of how the world was at that time. And yeah. whereas nowadays there's like no excuse for a lot of the stuff that happens in the movie. But the good news is, is that at the end of the day, this will still always be one of my favorite Christmas movies. Oh, yeah. I mean, and they, kids movies, too. Yeah. Both of them stand the test of time. I, I think both of them are pretty equal. Do you have a favorite? Like, do you like the first one versus the second one? Do you? I like the second one better. I like Home Alone better. Interesting. Yeah. I always okay. have since I was a kid, and honestly, I think it's just because my kid brain um, attaches to that one more. I don't know yeah. why the limo and the cheese pizza. I dream to be fancy. I think that's what's really happening here. <laughs> <laughs> one day, Jen. One day. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I, I find them to be equal. I like them both the same amount, but I would say, like I mentioned before, I recognize the music more so from the second one. And I don't know if that's just because I was a little bit older watching it. Or probably, that, that could more. have something to do with it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, always, I always liked the second one more. I probably have seen it more, but at the holidays now as an adult, I always make sure to watch both. I always find it interesting. You know they did a good job when people like the sequel just as much if not more than the first one. Oh, that's absolutely that's like that's like the one of the truest statements and one of the hardest things to do in hollywood these days absolutely so now that we've taken a look at both of these films we'd love to hear from you so definitely make sure to join the conversation and let us know and we just want to wish everybody you know a happy holiday and merry christmas you filthy animals and a happy new year Thank you, everyone, for listening and joining us today. We appreciate and love every single one of you. Join us next time and follow us on social media at Screen Mavericks Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, be awesome and keep streaming. <laughs>